for a question? Yes. After what we said about chapter 1, why is there any doubt in Paul's mind as to what the preaching I don't think there is any doubt in Paul's mind as to what he's been preaching. He says in verse 2, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain, that Paul is saying he went to them because he wanted to make sure he wasn't doing the wrong thing. I don't think that's what he means by that. What does he mean? I think he means to make sure that they're on the same page so they're not going to sabotage his whole work. I don't think he's saying... I went up to find out if what I was teaching was true. Right, but but if they had sabotaged him, somebody's wrong here. I think he would assume it was them. I don't think... But to us, that doesn't make any sense, because we know the apostles aren't wrong, and we know Paul isn't wrong. So why is there any doubt in Paul's mind? Because Paul's going to use that same phrase later in the book, speaking of the Galatians, he's hoping that he hadn't wasted his time with them. Yes. And so it's... The question is, why, why is Paul thinking this way? Okay, and that's a good question. I don't know if I completely can answer it, although I definitely think he's not doubting what he's preaching. But what about this? The false teachers who come at the, up to Antioch are representing themselves as having come from the Jerusalem church. And I bet they're saying that the true apostles, you know, they're teaching this. I don't know. I can imagine Paul thinking, surely they're not. Could they be doing that? And he, well, we better go up there and check it out. I, I see this as being something where what's being said by the false teachers could make Paul worry that maybe they had gotten completely off track up there. But that's not what he says. No, he doesn't say they. He said, I'm wondering if I had run in vain. So Paul is still assuming that he could have been wrong. I don't, He's not questioning the apostles being wrong. I don't think his saying I'd run, I might have run in vain would be saying he was wrong. It would just be saying that his work would be ruined by a split with the apostles. You know, when he says in 4, whatever that was, 419, 4, was it 4 something? Uh, that, oh, in uh, 11, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. He didn't mean that he would have been wrong, but that they would have defected. So I think he's worried that the apostles may have defected from the truth. I know that seems a little bizarre too. But I I definitely, you know, after what he said in chapter 1, I don't see him as at all doubting the truth of what he's preaching. He may be doubting whether they're preaching the truth and whether that in itself might, uh, you know, sabotage everything he's trying to do. What I wrote in my notes, Paul knew that a lack of the support of the Jerusalem brethren would have damaged the success of the work among the Gentiles. That's my take. You can can do what you want to with it, but that's my take. Other thoughts and comments on those first couple of verses? Who's all included in those who seem influential? Yes, I suspect the ones he mentions in verse 9, James and Cephas and John. That's a good question. Uh, He'll say later on he doesn't really care (laughs) who they were. You know, uh, but uh, I and probably others, maybe apostles, elders. You know, the the big shots among them, whoever those were. I would guess that the phrase "those who are of reputation" was a phrase the false teachers had been using. I suspect they'd been going around talking about now those who reputation, as opposed to Paul. 
but the ones who have reputation, because he will, you know, in verse 6, but from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, to those who are of reputation contributed nothing to me. It just sounds like, and then in verse 9 you say, those who were reputed to be pillars. So I bet the false teachers went around talking about those pillars, you know, those who are of reputation, you know, and so Paul picks up on that phrase. Other thoughts through too. And so, uh, what about Titus? He's a Greek. He's gone up there with Paul. He's kind of a test case. What did they do with Titus, a Greek? Yeah. He was not forced to be circumcised. The Jerusalem brethren do not make Titus be circumcised. They do not believe circumcision is needed for a Gentile. He says it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty in which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so the truth of the gospel would remain with you. None of this would even happen if it hadn't been these, for these false brethren probably the same ones that were troubling the brethren in, in, in Galatia. Um, you know, who had, had kind of been on an espionage mission. They, they'd sneaked in, they'd spied out, and they were trying to exploit the new converts to gain uh, a, a, you know, people adherence for the circumcision party. And Paul says, we did not yield to them, not even for an hour. You know, he resisted the demands to circumcise Titus. He would not allow that to happen. Now, that brings up an interesting question. See ya. Sorry. No problem. Good to have you. Um, what about Timothy? Didn't, didn't Paul circumcise Timothy? In Acts 16? You know about that? Look at Acts 16. Verse 3, Paul wanted this man, well, maybe I should start in 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him. Because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. <laughs> of all things... You know, absolutely will not stand for Titus being circumcised. And either before or after this, he circumcised Timothy. What's the deal? To circumcise or not to circumcise? That is the question. Yes, absolutely. What's the difference? That his father was a Greek. Does that matter? Yes, it does. Timothy was not the same as Titus. Titus was a full-blooded Greek. Timothy was a half-breed Greek Jew. Jewish mother, Greek father. So I think the fact that Paul was half-Jewish, or that Timothy was half-Jewish, is significant. Why is he circumcising Timothy? Because of that Jewish ancestry. And because... He was taken away. Just in the area. So he's trying to do what? 
Yeah, this is uh, helping to evangelize the Jews. It's going to keep down prejudice against Timothy when he evangelizes them. This was voluntary. Nobody was trying to get him to do that, but it, it will help. However, if Titus had been circumcised, the false brethren could have used that to promote the necessity of circumcision. It's one thing to say, okay, I'll do this to avoid creating a problem. It's another thing if people are saying it must be done. If they're insisting on it and demanding it to the point of doctrine, Paul would have resisted. But if they are, you know, if it's just a matter of trying to keep down Jewish prejudices so the gospel, the gospel can be spread about among them more, Paul would do it. There's a really interesting situation, really interesting contrast. Because on the surface it looks contradictory. But I think the more you study it, the more you can understand the motives behind what Paul does in each case. There's a time to give in and there's a time to resist. There's a time to say, I'll just go along with this so as to keep down prejudice. And there's a time to say, I will not give in to this. It depends on the context and how it's being perceived and how it's being used. In the Galatian situation, they are, I mean, circumcision to them means we're saying that you have to supplement the gospel with the law to be saved. In that situation, no compromise. Comments and questions on this and through verse 5. If if Timothy, like, so is the difference between avoiding a problem and catering to false teaching, is the difference then the, the, because people who would be prejudiced, say, against Timothy would have been wrong in that, but Paul didn't see that as a problem as much as if they had been trying to force that. Okay, you've got a couple things. One is they're non-Christians, and two, I don't think it's a question of them seeing that as wrong as much as them being prejudiced against a part Jew who's not circumcised. There's almost a cultural accommodation in the case of Timothy, not a doctrinal accommodation. Okay. What about that? I mean, you probably don't necessarily see it a lot, but there's still a lot of race problems, even in the church, like black and whites. How do, I mean, obviously there's a lot of just black congregations in the U.S. due to some of that. I mean, how, how do you deal with some of those things? Because the feelings on either side, whoever's being racist, isn't right, but yet at the same time, is it a big enough deal well, yeah, I do, definitely. Um, there may be some question of context and situation. Um, although, definitely in the scriptures, the idea of the unity of all brethren in one body, Jew or Gentile, is very strong. And the Jew-Gentile antagonism was very pronounced, but you never see a church for the Jews and a church for the Gentiles in any town. 
Now, you know, I might say, you know, you got a church in this area of town that's mostly black and it's a mostly black church. I'm not going to go into there and say, well, we got to find some whites and bring them in. Or vice versa. You know, I don't know. There's not more than half a dozen black families, I don't think, in Harrison County. Uh, you know, so do we have to bust the blacks to get the church integrated? <laughs> no. no. I mean, it's not that. But if somebody said, hey, you know, if there were any, ever any blacks around, they need to find a church of their kind. Well, that's absolutely blasphemous. And I think we'd have to take a strong stand that that's absolutely not right, and we wouldn't allow that. But, um, what about Jesus like sitting with the tax collectors and stuff? They're kind of looked at as like kind of a lot different. Like, like look at blacks or whites or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, Jesus was very much about abolishing those kind of distinctions. So, but but I mean, I do think still we have to decide what's cultural accommodation. And what's a compromise of the gospel? And sometimes those can be really tough issues to sort out in each situation. Other questions or comments? Good, good analogy. What would you say would be some practical ways to sort out those differences between cultural accommodation and well I would say is this being seen as something that's necessary to obey Christ and to be saved or is this understood as a way to bridge the gap to not alienate people unnecessarily Particularly, I think, with non-Christians. Um, so, I mean, I think the way you look at it, you know, at the risk of throwing the fat in the fire, I think this is actually a decent illustration. You know, I could see... There's, there's probably some weaknesses to this illustration, but I do think it's still relevant and, and helpful. What if you are going to attend an, a fairly, you know, affluent urban congregation? The dress code in worship is probably going to be a bit more elevated than in a poor rural church. And that may be true just in the society as a whole in that area. So you may, to avoid offending non-Christians who'd come and so forth, be a little bit more careful about what you wore. Um, but you wouldn't do that if somebody's insisting on that as a point of fellowship. You either wear this or you're not really a Christian here. Then I think we'd say, no compromise. I will wear it. And I won't stand for it. But if it's just a matter of we're accommodating the maybe the culture, well, yeah, we'd accommodate the culture and things like that. And and we do. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a difference. It, it, a lot of the difference depends on is this being insisted on as a point of faith 
Or is this simply trying to become all things to all men, trying to kind of fit their culture, the fit their lifestyle, and particularly fit those who are non-Christians, trying not to, you know, just throw up an unnecessary barrier, you know, against the gospel. Comments and thoughts on that. It's very helpful when you look at these circumcision questions in terms of just seeing some things that we need to to, to see. I mean, here the point, you know, to go back to, to Galatians. I don't know if Paul took Titus purposely there just to see what they do with him or not. But but Paul, you know, says nobody forced Titus to be circumcised, and we absolutely refuse to budge when these false teachers insisted on it. Titus was not circumcised. And, and, and he won't be circumcised. And Paul would not give in to legalistic brethren who were demanding that extra rules be followed for justification. If that's the question, Paul says, nothing doing. I won't budge. Alright. And so, he says, those big shots... You know, those who have a high reputation, well, it doesn't make any difference to me. God didn't show partiality, but they didn't contribute anything to me. In fact, what did the, the Jerusalem leaders see about the difference between Paul and the other apostles? What was the difference? Exactly. Same message, just going to preach it to different people. The leaders accepted the gospel that Paul announced with no changes and no additions. And uh, there ought not to be any competition. You know, it's the same Lord that's working effectually in both cases. Same message, just different audience. And they recognized in verse 9 the grace that had been given to me. James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So we might go to the Gentiles and they do the, the circumcised. Um, so they approved, they endorsed what Paul was doing. Now that's quite a group. Can you imagine Paul, James, Cephas, John, and Barnabas, all five being together? Do you realize what percentage of the New Testament books were written by those five? 90. 21 out of the 27 books were represented in uh, those that fivesome. So uh, that was quite that's quite a group, <laughs> you know. But but the point is, uh, they they approve. They give their full endorsement to Paul's work. Paul didn't receive his gospel from the apostles, but they endorsed the gospel that he preached. In fact, what's the only thing they ask him to do? Yeah. The fact that this was their only request shows that they're fine with what he preaches. Just remember the poor. Of course, what does Paul say about that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, and isn't that an intriguing thing? Look for a moment at 1 Corinthians 16. Did you ever notice this? 
1 Corinthians 16.1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. It may very well be, depending on when Paul wrote this, that the Galatians were already participating in this big project of Paul to provide for the poor in Jerusalem. So, clearly they know that Paul's eager to do that. He's been after them to participate in this collection. Uh, so that would kind of tie that all in together and be cool. Alright, so that's what I see through verse 10. Anybody? Dave? Why would they direct him to remember the poor? Um, like in First Corinthians, you know, it was obvious that he was eager to do that. So, I, that almost lends itself to Acts 11, right? Well, I think it lends itself against Acts 11. Why would they say that if he was up there for the sole purpose of bringing money to the poor? But it depends on how you look at it. You can make the argument either way. And I've seen it made both ways, I think. But, uh, but yeah, I think... I suspect they're probably sensitive on that point. You know, the one thing they want to be sure is that he keeps remembering the poor. But the fact that that's their only request is really significant in this context. And certainly not a request he has any problem with. Um, verse 4, when he, the kind of this aside, because of false teachers, Paul Paul's brother is secretly brought in, who slipped in despite our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus slavery. Uh, that seems really, I, I don't know what to, to do with that uh, in terms of, of what he's getting at. Like, why does he say... Well, I think these are the same false brethren that are in Galatia, and he's really trying to slam them. These guys are nothing but snakes. They've snuck in. They're trying to spy out your liberty. They're trying to enslave you. Do you realize what these guys are really like? Now he doesn't say it about them. He says it says it about these in in their, you know, in Jerusalem. But they're the same guys doing the same thing. And I think he's trying to really help them see these guys are are bad news. This is probably insignificant. But why does he switch back and forth between Peter and Cephas? I have no idea. Any other questions or comments, thoughts? All right, well, this is probably a good break point again, so why don't we uh, take a break? Oh, my, I think I touched something. All right, chapter two. Um, we really see Paul and, and Peter again. I want to suggest maybe uh, three ways that you can look at uh, these sections. You can see in chapter 1, Paul was Peter's guest. In 2.9, Paul received the right hand of fellowship from Peter. And now he's Peter's critic. That's one way you can look at that. Or maybe more, I don't know, succinct. Chapter 1 is Paul without Peter. Chapter 2, 1 to 10 is Paul equal to Peter. And now we have Paul superior to Peter. Um, You know, Paul didn't need Peter for the gospel or the other apostles. Paul was given the endorsement by them. And now Paul's actually taken Peter to task because he did the wrong thing. 
He acted inconsistently with his principles. So this is chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. came to Antioch, I opposed, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of their circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Okay, good. Let's stop there. Um, well, you know, here's the situation in 2.11. You know, Cephas came to Antioch. And Paul ended up rebuking him. Now the background of that is that Paul, Peter's custom was to eat together with the Gentile Christians. And then what happened? What happened that caused Peter to change his conduct? He was blind. Well, he was to be blamed, but what happened that caused him to change his conduct? Uh-huh. Some Jews showed up. Some Jews from James. Now that means they came from where? Jerusalem. And when they showed up, Peter quit eating with the Gentiles. This is uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Um... Why? Yeah, he was afraid of how it might look to them. You know, he was afraid that they would disapprove of his having social association and eating together with Gentiles. And so he withdrew and wouldn't uh, wouldn't have anything to do with these Gentile Christians. Now, what do you think about that? It kind of seems like he's being cowardice. I think so. Did he believe that it was okay to eat with the Gentiles? He must have, but he was doing it. He was doing it. But yet he knuckles under social pressure when these people from James come. And he doesn't eat with them anymore. Paul calls it, this is kind of an interesting word for this, but he uses it twice in 13, it's hypocrisy. Now how is this hypocrisy? Well, I don't know, when you think of the standard term for hypocrisy, it's, you know, you say one thing and do another, and here he was just physically doing one thing and then doing another, so I guess it could still be considered. Yeah, normally hypocrisy is like you, you know, preach better than you live, and that's kind of what he was doing. You know, 
he was he believed and taught that the Gentiles ought to be accepted, but he didn't do it. You know, he he his conduct showed that he denied that the Gentiles were accepted by the Lord and ought to be socialized. So his conduct was inconsistent with his profession. In that sense, he's a hypocrite. And what were the consequences of of what Peter did? Uh, Even Barnabas... Uh, the rest of the Jews and even Barnabas (laughs) of all things Barnabas Paul couldn't believe this this is shocking that even Barnabas would withdraw from eating with the Gentiles he'd been in the forefront with Paul of Gentile evangelism wow this is like a domino effect you know they all fell into this, following Peter's lead. And so what did Paul do? He confronted Peter in front of everyone. Yeah, whoa. He fronted him out. Uh, And, you know, says if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You know, Peter's conduct required that the Gentiles become Jews to have anything to do with Peter. And yet he had not felt like he had to be a Gentile. You know, he'd, he'd, uh, he, he, he'd you know, eaten with them before. He'd been a Gent, he'd, he'd, he'd socialized with them, and now he's requiring them to become Jews to have any fellowship with him. You know, so it didn't make any sense. You know, on the one hand, he eats with them, and then suddenly he doesn't. And so Paul's very firm with him. There's a lot of practical lessons in this, but that's basically the story. And so Paul confronted him in front of everybody and rebuked him because he acted in a way that was inconsistent with his principles and even with his prior behavior. Comments and thoughts? Is this the same Peter that, uh, like, when he said that he would not deny Christ? That's the same one. So it's not the same thing like he's doing this. Sort of is. Kind of reminds you of what he did at the when he denied Christ because of social pressure. Britain. Um, is this kind of I think this is kind of also something like we struggle with that I think as he's sitting with them and eating and then he sees other people coming, but he doesn't want them to think bad of him. So and he wants to fit in, kind of wants to be looked at or something. We face that same thing, don't we? What do we call that? Peer pressure. That's exactly what I got in my notes. Peer pressure. You know, this this pressure from the other people that we're trying to impress, that we're trying not to look bad in front of, I mean, that leads you to doing stupid things. I mean, Peter, it's just like what Matt was talking about. Peter says, I will never deny you. I'll die with you, but I'll never deny you. And hours later he was saying, may God damn my soul if I know that man. (laughs) Now how did that happen? Peer pressure. You know, he got scared. He's in front of all these enemies. And he backs down and, and just does stupid things. So, you know, it kind of reminds you 
that, you know, what's a problem for us? You know, at one point in our life, sometimes crops crops back up later on. And we got to be men and women enough to stand for what's right. I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. But that, that was a weakness that Peter had had. Is there any other cases like this? Where he den- uh, denies or does whatever, does wrong under peer pressure? I don't know. Any other examples of Peter doing wrong under peer pressure? He did plenty of things wrong. I'm not sure the peer pressure was the reason. <laughs> the only thing that really comes to my mind, and this may or may not be peer pressure, but um, when Jesus predicts uh, his death and resurrection, that wasn't a favorable topic among the uh, disciples. And so at that point, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. That may or may not be, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if that was either. But Maybe like a, a, a Mount of Transfiguration. I said you didn't know what to say. And so he says you should go through tabernacles for him. Good point. Yeah, that might have been. Trying to trying to figure out something to say to sound good. <laughs> You know, some people, some people, when they feel uncomfortable socially, clam up, and some people just start talking. <laughs> and uh, Peter certainly did his share of talking. What else do you see in this? You see, I see here, especially in verse 13, you see here Peter in a position of leadership, and he's... And he's leading people astray, even the strongest people like Barnabas. And that's something us to those of us who are in positions of leadership to take seriously, that people are looking at us, not just the young ones and the weak ones, but even strong people are looking at us. It's a very good point. We need to think about who's following us. Because when Peter does this, you know, he's the apostle Peter, he's got a lot of clout. It's it's really frightening. The more influence we get, the more everything we do, people are going to look at, and they're liable to follow it. You know, it's been more and more, you know, a heavy thing to me. As I get older, people listen to me more. They tend to imitate me more. You know, I mean, I never even thought about that when I was younger. You know, I don't think anybody ever paid any attention to me. You know, but and you think, wow, that's great. You know, people start listening to you. They start they start imitating you. Well, it is and it isn't. You know, then you have to think about. You know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes, I mean, every once in a while, it's like even hear people who I've been around quite a bit talk, and they say things the same way I'd say them, and it does. It's like, ooh, yeah, I guess I probably did say that, but that probably wasn't the best thing to say, or you know, whatever. You start seeing people, you know, who are influenced by you, and that's frightening. The truth is, probably we have more influence than we think we do, even when we're younger. And I think I probably, at some points, just didn't even see it when I was younger. When There are. We influence each other. You know that's true. And how many times, think if you haven't done this somewhere along the line, are there any times that you've looked at somebody and you want to know, I don't know whether I ought to do this or not, but so-and-so does it, and he's a strong Christian, it must be okay. Have you never done that before? I have. You know, well, if, if, if brother so-and-so, or sister so-and-so does it, then it must be okay. 
And it's just like, wow. You know, one person's even behavior. I mean, that not even be what they say. It may just be you've observed them doing it. And, and you kind of justify yourself and you feel like it's okay or whatever. That's really scary. We really need to keep our behavior proper. <laughs> you know, you never know who's going to watch you. <laughs> other thoughts and comments on that or other observations on this? Well, when you said that, um, you, I don't know what to do in this situation, but I look towards this guy. Uh, I can't really remember any situations like that. It's probably them, but I do remember that um, that there's a saying WWJD, mm-hmm. Jesus. Did. Mm-hmm. That's who we ought to be looking to. That's the right thing. You know, what do you think about Paul here with his rebukes, his rebuke of Peter? I mean, wow. You look at verse 11 and you look at verse 14. What would you say about that? Well, did he do the right thing? Kind of. Um, I know a lot of times that I guess maybe that it's just the times when that were opposed. I guess publicly um, rebuking somebody. That kind of bothers us, doesn't it? The fact that he did it publicly. Why did he do that? Because others were following. Yeah, I think so. I don't think he would have necessarily done that if it hadn't been for the context where you know, others had been misled by what he'd done and they needed to see Paul opposing him for it. Um, so I think there is a time for public confrontation. Now, remember back in verse 2, he had first gone privately to those who were in reputation about the circumcision question. There's certainly a time to have private confrontation. But there are some situations that require public confrontation. And, um, you know, this is, I believe, one of those. Um, think about what Paul didn't do. Paul didn't gossip. You know, he didn't talk about Peter to others. I'm not saying there's never a time that it would be appropriate to talk to someone about someone else. But think about it. Wouldn't it really help Peter a lot if Paul had gone to, I don't know, John and told John, did you hear what Peter did? Man, I can't believe Peter did that. What good would that have done? Hard to see much of any, isn't it? Who had the problem? Peter and those he'd influenced. Who should be talked to? I mean, you appreciate the directness of Paul. He really cares about Peter and the situation, so he talks to him. There's no game playing here. You know, he's just very direct. I must say, I find it a little interesting that Paul cites this in the letter. You know, I might have done it, but then I wouldn't have gone around telling everybody about it. Um, But I think it makes an important point that Paul's trying to make here. Um, And maybe establishes even more that Peter's not the standard. The Gospel's the standard. Um, So that's interesting. Think about Peter taking it. I mean, wow. What if you'd have been Peter? Hearing Paul publicly rebuke you, what would you have done then? 
perhaps. Well, I don't know. I guess with it just being Peter, because he doesn't always think before he speaks, could have been resentful uh, immediately, as you know we tend to do a lot of times. But at the same time, there's another side to Peter where he could have been appreciative of it because Jesus did that to Peter a lot of times and he openly rebuked him and I guess corrected him so it could have been that he appreciated it maybe not so understood it but at least it, he was thankful it was brought to his attention that's what he should have done I, you know, we don't have here a statement about how Peter reacted but we know later on in Second Peter 3 Peter talked about our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him and, and speaks of, of what he wrote. So evidently, Peter held no grudge. I'm assuming Peter accepted it okay, but that would have taken a really big man to take the public rebuke and receive it and learn from it. Uh, wow. Uh, and I've had a hard time. When I've been rebuked, it's hard for me, even if it's right, not to feel some sense of resentment and coldness toward the person who rebuked me. Especially depending on how they did it. That's really hard for me. You know, it's like, it just hurts me so bad. You know, it just kind of embarrasses me and makes me feel, I don't know, tense about it. And I really think we need to really work on how we receive rebuke. That is tough. But man, Proverbs talks about that all the time. Other things that you'd like to uh, say about this. Oh, one other thing I'm going to mention. This whole idea of eating with the Gentiles. We need to stand with the outcast. I think this would be a perfect example of kind of going back to what John asked about the separate churches for the blacks and whites. I mean, you know, to Paul, Paul felt like it was wrong for Peter to withdraw and not not eat with the Gentiles. You know, there is no excuse for us to make distinctions based upon, you know, race race or nationality, or even based upon prior moral behavior. You know, I mean, I, I we just, you know, we just don't have any right to uh, look down on any of God's children. You know, if, if they're good enough to be in fellowship with God, well, they better be good enough to be in fellowship with us. And uh, I would even say, you know, that, that maybe, maybe this would uh, be a principle that ought to be considered in questions like interracial marriage and things like that. But sometimes, even brethren who seem to have had a decent attitude about other things have a hard time with it. And, you know, I mean... The whole Bible would indicate, you know, the New Testament particularly, that we ought not to make these distinctions uh, that that people make socially. And uh, so, um, this is this is a very strong strong point uh, that Paul makes to Peter. Comments and questions through verse fourteen. Yes, Jim. Uh, full question. Um, so, in verse fourteen, he says that. Peter has been forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. Well, if they're going to have anything to do with him. Okay, I, they won't have anything to do with them now that James people have come unless they're circumcised. Okay. 
okay. Well, he withdrew and held himself aloof. So he wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles in verse 12. And Paul sees that as compelling the Gentiles to live like the Jews, or he won't have anything to do with them. So, so by not eating with them, he's saying, I'm only eating with you unless you're circumcised. Yes. Okay. That's the only people he'll eat with. That's the only people he won't hold himself aloof from. That makes sense. Um, so, the apostles are inspired, or certainly prophets, um, but they obviously make mistakes too. Yes. Like, how do, is there a good way of thinking about how that works? I mean, do we, do we take the, the prophets and the uh, trust in the inspiration of their epistles, even though as men they made mistakes with sin and, you know, Paul would say I'm not perfect yet and things like that? Yes. I think so. I think, you know, God oversaw the product, the scriptures, so that they were perfect. Uh, but that did not exempt those writers from temptations and from sins. I mean, you see that in some obvious cases in the Bible. I mean, look at Solomon. He wrote scripture, but wow, did he ever misbehave? You know, look at Balaam. You know, he spoke the message God put in his mouth and forced him to speak, but sure didn't want to. You know? And um, the classic illustration of uh, inspiration having nothing to do with character is this Balaam's donkey, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, gods can speak by anything. <laughs> Other questions or comments? How do you go about publicly publicly rebuking somebody? I think I would want to like go to Peter privately and say, Hey, you, you need to come forward Sunday morning and you know, this guy. <laughs> 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 yeah. I wouldn't want to be the one to say in front of everybody you're wrong. You know, look at uh, 1 Timothy 5. I mean, essentially, that's what Paul told Timothy to do. You know, I think this is talking about elders in the context it is. But 1 Timothy 5.20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sin. I mean, I think that there are particularly cases of brethren who have influence they have to be publicly opposed. I don't think we are probably as forceful about that as we ought to be. Um, well, what if what if an influential brother got up and preached and taught something that was was very wrong? What would we do about that? You know, we have brother so and so in for a meeting. And, you know, he preaches some heresy on divorce and remarriage or whatever. What would we do? I think the right thing to do would be get up and say, this is not biblical. Look at what the Bible says. You know, that would be rather tense <laughs> and uh, require some quick thinking. 
reminds me of Titus 1.9, the elders are to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort, to sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those in the circumcision, who must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families and so forth. He says, therefore, reprove them severely, so they may be sound in the faith. Realize that's not exactly the same situation as Peter's. Um, but... I mean, I can see even misbehavior of leaders as being something that would need to be publicly challenged in some cases. Um, I did something, this was not nearly parallel, but I do think I did the right thing about this many years ago um, in the church here, somebody who's not been here for a long, long time, but who, who... said something really outrageous in a Lord's Supper talk. And so I confronted him about it. <laughs> he made it even more outrageous. He did not have a good attitude, had not had a good attitude, and I thought needed to be publicly exposed. I did not name his name. But the next Sunday, I preached the opposite of what he said and preached it pretty strongly partially to try to limit his influence not only in that but in other areas. What he said was absolutely, completely anti-biblical. He said that Jesus should not receive worship. And the Bible is says just the opposite of that. And so I pointed that out. And, you know, maybe I should have done that even more directly. And although I think people got the point, I think it probably did help in limiting people's giving credence to what the man said. Uh, he was just not a good man and certainly not leading people. You know, I wouldn't, I certainly don't think we would do these things impulsively or frequently, <laughs> perhaps. I mean, you know, it's not to say that every time somebody says anything, we just jump up and blast them. I mean, we've got to have a good heart in that. But I, I think we're, we're so worried about, you know, a public controversy that we tend to just almost allow anything to happen and nothing's ever said about it. I, I know I need to be bolder. I suspect most of us do. I don't know, is that, do you have a reaction to that one way or the other? Good, good thought, good comment. I definitely feel that a lot of it. Um, when Paul reminds Timothy, on many occasions to teach and preach with love. It also, that same idea of loving one another, because when women grieve from somebody, you know, as, you, it's, as you stated, when we do it, we shouldn't do it to try and make ourselves seem better or make our viewpoint seem like the better choice, but just to do it in a manner that is respectful, showing love and just ultimately trying to get the word across and to preach truth with boldness but at the same time with love. The public rebuke may not always be just for the benefit of the person that you're talking to. Maybe to try to change other people's opinion and so forth also. So there's more to love in this than the person who does or teaches the wrong. You also love the people that are being, you know, misguided by them. Other comments and thoughts? Okay. Uh, how about 15 to 21? 
we are Jews by nature and not sinners among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Alright, this is a pretty tough section. I have to kind of sort it through a verse at a time. And one thing we don't really know is if these are still Paul's remarks to Peter, or if this is Paul's statements to the Galatians. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if this is still what he says to Peter, or if he's just saying this, you know, in verse 14 was what he said to Peter. Uh, so you can take that either way you want to, as far as I'm concerned. don't know that it makes a lot of difference. Um, but he says, we are Jews by nature, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. How did the Jews see themselves? Holy, the gospel yeah, people. Exactly. Uh, and yet, even at that, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. You know, not even the Jews could, could justify themselves by law. Not even they were right on the basis of their, their record, their works. They had to be saved by faith too. Thus, the Jews were in the same situations as the sinner Gentiles were in. Lost and needing faith in Christ to be justified. If the law didn't save the Jews, I think this is a strong point. If the law didn't save the Jews, why go back and try to impose it on the Gentiles? You know, if, if you'd have thought that law could have saved anybody, wouldn't it have been the Jews? You know, because they were Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. The law can't even manage to save Jews. What in the world are we doing thinking that it could save Gentiles? Does that make sense? I think that's a powerful argument. Now, this goes to some of the points he's going to be making in chapters 3 and 4. We're kind of introducing this. I mean, his point is going to be, we are right with God by our faith in Christ, not because we've kept the law. And we might as well just, you know, put this on the record a little bit, although many of you have heard me say some of these things and know them well. But there are two concepts of being justified, of being right with God. If it's by law, what do you have to do? Keep it perfectly. Why do you say perfectly? What if I keep the law more or less? Yes, but I haven't broken very much of it, and I didn't break it very often. 
Does that really make any difference? And it doesn't if you think about the laws of the land. You know, the guy who only shot up six people, but there's, think of all the millions he never killed. You know, that doesn't really work. Or think about all the good deeds he's done and all the laws he has kept. I mean, how many people do you have to kill in cold blood with plenty of witnesses before you're going to be convicted as a murderer? I think one will do. You know? So, if you're going to be right by law, anybody's law, you have to keep it. And that means perfectly. I mean, keeping it means keeping it. You know, can you imagine somebody coming up before the judge and saying, the guy who, you know, murdered the six people. It's like, do we have to keep this law perfectly? You know, I've, I've pretty much kept it. I mean, you know, I've lived for, for you know, 40 years. There was just one day I even killed anybody. You know, that's pretty good. Why would you expect, expect me to keep it perfectly? Well, I mean, those kind of things we would never even dream of as a defense. No defense lawyer has ever tried to use that tactic. We understand if you're going to be just by law, you have to keep it. And that means every part of it, every bit of the time. The other option is being just by faith, where Christ's blood forgives your sins, and you, by trusting in Christ and serving Him, are made righteous, not on the basis of your record, but on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. That's the only practical justification that exists for us, because guess what? We're all lawbreakers. There's nothing else we can do. Alright, comments or questions on 15 and 16? Can you have both? Uh, can you sanctified? I really can't have it time, but can you have, uh, I, so. I think you're right saying sanctified, right? About both law, spiritual, and... No. It's uh, one or the other. Alright. Now, verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Now, this is a really hard passage. Um, and, you know, think about, I want you to think about a concept before we really look at what that verse is trying to say. Why was it that there was so much insistence on trying to impose the law on the part of the Judaizing teachers? Why why did they why why would they care why why would they try to impose the law? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, they put all the focus on sacrifices and on keeping the letter of the law, but didn't focus on the heart. Um, would, that have, would that have anything to do with it? Well, it could be. But what were these Judaizing teachers thinking? Without the law, people would just sin as much as they want. Yes. You know, this is a way of keeping people in line. You know, it just doesn't seem right that you can just forgive wicked, unworthy sinners and they're okay. You ought to have to keep the law. You ought to have to do some works. Um, you know, and so the idea of imposing the law is kind of like trying to become good enough to be saved. 
Uh, otherwise, I mean, think about what happens if you just let people be saved by faith in Christ. What kind of people do you end up saving? Yeah! I mean, people who've done some really bad things. You know, homosexuals and adulterers and drunkards and idolaters. And, you know, a whole bunch of those other people that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. You know, that doesn't seem right. Shouldn't Christ save the best people? That would be normal. That would be what? Normal. Why? Be more, wouldn't it be more right? Can't you see how they thought about this? They thought of it as you kind of earning your salvation, working your way up. You know, the more you keep the law, the closer you get. And, you know, that sort of thing. They don't really accept this idea of salvation for sinners based upon the blood of Christ. And to them, this is kind of just saying morality doesn't matter. And you can just sin and then Christ will just forgive you. Of course, you know, you have to understand that when they say all this, they're not really seeing themselves as much sinners. You know, a little dose of honesty and self-examination might have helped them a whole lot. You know, we, we always tend to look down at everybody else as the sinners. You know, we're almost not, uh, you know, by our way of thinking of it. And, uh, you know, really, there are people today that you know, think of being saved in terms of law-keeping and being good, and, and and sometimes think about it almost in exactly the same boat. So, it's the same, same way. So look at verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves also have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May never be. I mean, when we are seeking justification in Christ, what are we saying about ourselves? We can't keep the law. Yeah. We are admitting that we are sinners, helpless and hopeless without Christ. We're putting ourselves on the same level with the Gentiles. Otherwise, we wouldn't need Christ. So if when we're, while, we, while we're seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Doesn't that Christ make Christ a minister of sin? You know, I mean... That, that he just comes along and saves sinners and that him just kind of promoting sin and, and tolerating sin like sin's just okay. Romans 6, 1 and 2, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's just what you're doing. You're just saying that, you know, well, it's okay to sin because then, you know, Christ, Christ will, you know, he'll save you, you know, who's a sinner. Now, you're, just, you're just putting Christ as a minister of sin. Can't you imagine people saying that? I think that's kind of what you know he was saying. He said, may it never be. That's not the case. What is the real sin? Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Rebuilding what he once destroyed, that would be the real sin. You know, what did he once destroy? Well, the dependence on the law and the division between Jew and Gentile. You know, he destroyed uh, the, the legalism. He destroyed the, the separation between Jew and Gentile. If he goes back and tries to build that back up, like the Judaizing teachers were saying, and like Peter had tried to do at Antioch, that'd be the real sin. <laughs> And of course, that's 
he's supplying that to himself. But that's what he's really saying about them. The sin is when you try to re-erect the law as a means of justification. Now that's really tough, and I won't uh, stake my life on that. But do you have questions or comments on 17 and 18? Or anything through 18? Alright, 19. For through the law, I died to the law. What does he mean by that? How, how does he die to the law, through the law? The law said what was wrong, and he did what was wrong, and so he died to it. You're on the right track, but not quite there yet, I don't think. What did the law do? Pointed out that he was a sinner. Yes. The law revealed that he's a profound sinner, and he can't do anything about it. The law led him to die to the law. It destroyed the hope of salvation by works. It, it led him to seek salvation in Christ because the law showed him how bad he was. So through the law, he died to the law so that he might live to God. Alright, comments and questions on 19. And then in 20, he doesn't only die to the law, what does he die to in 20? Not die to Christ, with Christ, dying to who? Dying to himself. You know, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul doesn't live for himself anymore, Christ lives in him. Because Christ died for us. You know, Christ... And, and think about this. Did Christ die for all men? Did he die for me? You know, Paul personalizes it. It's not just that Christ died abstractly for everyone. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And therefore he dies with Christ so he can live with Christ. You know, probably, you know, Bob Waldron's illustration that I've used a few times is the best one I know. Uh, just to make you think about that. I mean, he says, what if you wake up in the middle of the night, in the, you know, tomorrow, tonight, and uh, suddenly, and, and you see that, that Jesus is standing by your bed. It'd be weird, wouldn't it? And what happens is, you get out of your body, and Jesus gets into it. When you wake up the next morning, it's not you inside, it's Jesus inside. Now, you still look the same. You still have the same height, weight, and all that. But instead of you being inside, it's Jesus inside. wonder what would be different tomorrow if it was Jesus inside of you instead of you inside of you. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be something to think about? Well, that's not going to happen literally. But that's sort of what happens. You know, I don't live to myself anymore. Jesus lives in me. You know, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Jesus living in my body and not me. You know, if we could think about what it would be like if that happened literally, then that gives us a goal as to how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live as if, as if it was Jesus living in us and not ourselves. All right.
And then in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Um, If you could be saved by law, then why did Jesus need to die? It's one or the other. The fact that Jesus had to die meant there was no other way to be saved. Can a person be saved by doing good? Without the sacrifice of Christ? No. No. Then Jesus didn't... didn't, You know, if a person could be saved, saved by doing good, then Jesus didn't need to die. Can a heathen be saved by some world religion? What's a what now? Can a heathen be saved, a pagan be saved by some world religion? Can he be saved by Buddhism or Islam or whatever? If we could, Jesus didn't need to die. You know, if, if, if there's another way to be saved outside of the grace of Christ, if, if being saved by law and by works was sufficient, then Jesus died needlessly. It wasn't necessary. That would nullify the grace of God. Alright, comments and questions on chapter 2. This is in verse 31, more maybe the, uh, um, through the, through the Old Testament. I mean, did, did the Jews think that because of their burnt offerings and peace offerings and the Day of Atonement, that that took care of their sin? Um, well, maybe so. I mean, maybe not just that. Uh, but they thought that they were going to be made righteous by keeping the law. Circumcision, especially. I think that's the bigger question for them. I mean, I don't know that when they're talking about keeping the law, they're necessarily intending just all of it. Circumcision was the big thing. I just would have thought that they would have... I mean, it makes sense to say... That uh, if you can find righteousness through the law, press up in a purpose, uh, that makes sense to me to say, like, well, if the, if the, like, like Hebrew writers does, if those sacrifices were good enough, you wouldn't need Christ. They obviously aren't. And so therefore you do need Christ. But I think he's, he's saying that just in general. If, if you can save yourself by law, if you can save yourself by being circumcised, then Christ didn't need to die. Anything else? Well, let's take a break again. See if it doesn't self-destruct. All right, chapter 3. Um, and I want you to think about a little bit about what's practical here in this first section. Now, it's really leading us into chapters 3 and 4. But... You know, a book like Galatians is similar to a book like Hebrews in that it's almost completely devoted to trying to keep brethren from falling away. These false teachers are coming in and trying to pervert the gospel and gain the Galatian brethren as their followers. And um, so what he's saying right here is really trying to keep them from falling away, trying to keep them from leaving Christ. Now I want you to think about this a little bit We're going to look at it in context, but I do think this is a really good passage to help people not fall away. Because there are several reasons why people might fall away. False teaching is one of them. Sins that overcome us. That's another one. 
or other things that sort of overshadow the Lord in our life. You know, that can cause us to fall away. There's a lot of reasons why we might fall away, and I think this passage actually would be helpful for people in any situation where they might be tempted to fall away. So we'll kind of make some applications, not just to the Galatian situation, but to our falling away from the Lord in general. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. A foolish Galatians, who is bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want you to learn from this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit of the works of law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You foolish Galatians! How many times does Paul name his hearers like that? Not often. Can you think of the other times? Peter. He does it only under strong emotion. Second Corinthians six eleven, he says, "Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide." And in Philippians four, and verse fifteen, you yourselves also know Philippians that our first about the first preaching of the gospel, etc. Those may be the only two other two passages where he names them like that. Um, so that's a pretty uh, pretty powerful thing. Um, and shows he's really strongly emotional. It's, he's, you know, means this strongly. He says, who has bewitched you? <laughs> the, the idea of the word is like to be brainwashed or hypnotized or put under some kind of an evil spell. <laughs> That's what sin does to us. Kind of puts a hex on us. It brainwashes us. And it's like they've changed in a way that's so shocking that no normal cause seems sufficient to explain it. You know, this is this is almost beyond explanation. Um, and so he says, you know, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? You know, um, the, the idea is, is Jesus crucifixion was so vivid in their minds it's like it's been publicly displayed like it was a mural or something, painting and he said you've seen it that clearly who has hypnotized you who's put you under an evil spell what has happened to you guys this is amazing to Paul, he cannot believe we're back to 1-6 so quickly, they were leaving so much for so little What? Is, who came along and and you know brainwashed him. This is just this is just unbelievable. He says this is the only thing I want to find out from you. And by saying that he's he's saying I'm willing to stake my entire piece on this. You know here's the one thing I want to know. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Now when he says did you receive the Spirit, I suspect he doesn't just mean did you receive the Holy Spirit into your life. But he probably means, did you receive the Spirit together with all the blessings that the Spirit brings? The gospel and, and forgiveness and all of that. In 2 Corinthians 3, for example, the Spirit is used as kind of shorthand for the gospel that's brought by the Spirit. 
So I, I, I think this may be a, a broad term, meaning the, the blessings we have in Christ. But, but whatever you want to make that as being, how did you get it? Did you, get, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Well, what would they have to say? How did they receive the Spirit? Is it by the law or faith? Can I have my faith here? Sure. It's my faith. Now, think about our receiving forgiveness and hope and eternal life. How did we get it? Did it come through some doctrine or philosophy or human theory or whatever it is that we're tempted to follow after to lead us astray from the Lord? Is that how we got that? No, we got it through the gospel. Did it come through our sin? You know, if, if, it's, if we're tempted to be fall away by our sin, did, did we get the spiritual blessings in Christ through that sin that we're tempted to sacrifice Christ for? In fact, you know, what will you get by your sin? It won't be any of these things, that's for sure. Did it come through to, to you, did, did you get the, the spiritual blessings through whatever you're tempted to put before the Lord? You know, did your job give that to you? Did your hobby give that to you? Did the fun you want to have give that to you? How did you get the, the Spirit? You know, the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, where did they come from? They didn't come from whatever it is I'm falling away because of. That's a really good question to ask. When you think about falling away, what has it gotten you and what will it gain you? What will it do for you? It had never done anything for you so far. Had never done anything for anybody else so far. It's like Romans 6, verse 20, 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed of? For the outcome of those things is death. You didn't get anything out of them. What are you going to get out of falling away from the Lord? Certainly nothing like you've gotten out of the Lord. Comments and questions on the first two verses? Good questions. I look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You know, they started in the Spirit, and now they've done an about faith and are running back toward the starting line. You know... How can they think that they'll, if they've begun by the Spirit, they can be perfected by the flesh? He may mean that almost literally. <laughs> Remember, circumcision is the question. You think they're going to advance to perfection by taking a piece of flesh from their body? And again, think about, you know, when you began your commitment to the Lord. How was it in the beginning? What, was your, what did your repentance mean? What did your new life and your commitment to the Lord mean? What kind of zeal and enthusiasm did you have then? Do you think you're, the thing you're falling away to, the sin or the false teaching or whatever, will it perfect what you started in Christ? Doesn't make any sense. What, what's it going to give them? Where is it going to lead them? It's not going to lead them to the ultimate conclusion that they began with. And then he says in verse five, did you or verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Look at all you gave up and all you suffered. You've already invested so much. You know, 
Why would you turn your back on it now? Think about all the things we've already sacrificed, all the things we've already suffered. Think about how much of the way we've already come through. Why would you give all that up to fall away to whatever? Going back would make everything you've ever suffered and sacrificed in vain. I think those are strong arguments. Why are they tempted to go back? Why are they tempted to turn away to the to the Judaizing teaching, to the works of the law? He summarized in verse 5, So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by, by the hearing with faith? You know, the, 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 the one who's, who's giving you the blessings you've got now, it comes by faith, not by law. Comments and questions. Does that make sense? Still awake? Well, I do got one question. It's kind of not on the exact subject, but what is a circumcision? Or a circumcision? Yeah, I'll tell you privately. Alright. Alright. Alright, anything else through verse 5? Alright, 6 to 9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify. The Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Okay. Now he goes back to think about justification by faith. And who does he cite? Abraham. He's a great example. He was kind of like their... Uh, you know, great patriarch. He was their great forefather that started the whole thing up. And what does the scripture say about Abraham being righteous? How did he get righteousness? By believing in God. Yeah. That's what the scripture said about Abraham. So if we are of faith, we are sons of Abraham. Now, when, when the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Was that talking about the moment he accepted God into his heart? No. It's talking about his life of faith. It was actually in Genesis 15, even after he'd already left the earth, the Chaldees and went to Haran, and then he'd left Haran and sojourned in the land of Canaan. This was not a one-time thing on Abraham's part. This was this was something that he did, you know, throughout his life. He trusted God, he obeyed God, he lived by faith. Faith was the principle upon which his right relationship with God was based. And then he says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Um, so Think about why God even chose Abraham in the first place. What was God's purpose and point? So that all the nations could be saved. And how far back does God say that? Genesis 3. Yeah. And in connection with Abraham, even in Genesis 12. 
I mean, it's clear from the very call of Abraham, from the very beginning, that God was planning on saving the Gentiles through Abraham's family. God dealt with the Jews in a special way to bring salvation to all men. And now that we have Christ, then God doesn't deal with the Jews in a special way anymore because the purpose of his special relationship with the Jews has now been fulfilled with the coming of Christ who came to bless all men, uh, the Gentiles. So if we want to be children of Abraham, if we want to be heirs of the Abrahamic blessing and promise, what do we have to do? Believe in God. Yeah. It's by faith. We have to believe. We have to trust. So that's justification by faith and Abraham is the granddaddy of it. Comments and questions? I don't know if I, I know all that's behind it, but I think it's cool that he calls it the gospel. That he preached the gospel it's saying that in you shall all the nations be blessed. I mean, that's the good news is that all the nations shall receive uh, the blessing through Abraham uh, which I guess is both in Jesus but also being in Christ through Abraham's faith yes and what you see is this whole plan is one plan and one purpose thing this is not like you have different segments you know like that are not there's no continuity between. This is this is God working out His will start through through these various steps. So when God called Abraham, He 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 was calling Abraham to be able through him to bless the Gentiles in Christ. This is all a part of this comprehensive plan that God has. Comments or questions? Look at the other side. Justification by works. 10 to 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform, to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, before the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Alright. By the works of the law, what do we receive? Now that contrast with what we receive through Abraham, which was what in verse 8 and 9? Yes. Either blessed or you're cursed. Through faith we receive blessing. Through the works of the law we receive a curse. Because what does the law say? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. How many things do we have to abide by to avoid the curse? All things. So, there's a blessing on those who have faith in the gospel. There's a curse upon everyone who disobeys any law and under the law. 
See the, the difference between those two? And even the law itself said the righteous man shall live by faith. So the law itself testified that the only life there is, is by faith. And he says, the law is not of faith. Those are two different things. To, to, live, to, to, be, to be right by law, verse 12, you have to practice them. Salvation by law is a matter of achievement. It's a matter of you do the things and you earn it. Salvation by faith is a matter of grace and forgiveness. Comments or questions through verse 12? Where are these uh, stuff is coming at? Cause I mean, where are the prophets? Yeah, where are these prophets in this Let's see. Uh, verse 10 is what? Deuteronomy? I think I'm probably got Yeah, Deuteronomy 27. And then uh, verse 11, it's Habakkuk 2 4. And verse 12, I think it's Leviticus somewhere. Leviticus 18.5. Uh, that is in Deuteronomy 20 something 21 yeah I mean the law and faith are two different principles of being right with God because by law what you have to do is do what it says you know, so so the law law justification is not a matter of faith; it's a matter of achievement. It's a matter of earning it. That's the thing we got to see is just what it means to be to be under law and under faith. In a law system, you do it to be saved. Under faith, there's forgiveness for those who haven't kept the law perfectly. Does that make sense? I mean, those two concepts are key concepts in all of this. The, the works of the law versus faith, you have to understand that if you were ever going to be justified by the works of the law, it means perfect obedience, just like we were talking about before with just killing one person. Justification by faith means you, you trust in the Lord and there's forgiveness when you fail. Now he explains that in 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's like if you break the law, there is a curse. There is a punishment. And you can't get out of that except Jesus he took the punishment that we deserved on himself. And therefore, he suffered in our place. He endured our curse so that we could be blessed. And, you know, criminals were hung up on a tree after they'd been executed. It's kind of an example. So when Jesus was hung on the tree, it just it shows that he was cursed. And thus he was taking our curse. He was taking the penalty that our not obeying the law requires. What do you think?
is another way of saying that uh, through the law, I died of the law, someone lived to God, I mean, obviously different, but it's through the law that Christ bore the curse so that we could be free from the law? Yeah, I mean, he bore, you know, the law basically um, is there. And and if you break the law, then the curse has to operate. Uh, so, I mean, Jesus was able to satisfy the demands of the law, the demands of righteousness, by being punished in our place. I mean, by the very nature of God's righteousness and holiness, sin has to be punished. The demands of the law have to be met. But sin was punished by Jesus being punished in our place. By Him receiving the curse that comes on the person who breaks the law. It is hard, even though a lot of brethren are now disagreeing with this, it's very difficult for me to see why we wouldn't say that Jesus experienced the ultimate punishment separation from God banishment from God I mean if he didn't go through something equivalent to what hell is it seems to me like that's the idea he took the curse you know our curse is to be cut off from God Jesus took that in our place so he experienced I think Jesus experienced something we don't even understand We've never been cut off from God. God shines the sun on the just and the unjust, rains, and His presence blesses the world. I don't care if you're a, you know, wicked atheist. His presence blesses you in this world. And I think Jesus received an unspeakable punishment that goes beyond anything we can ever imagine. And that we'll never have to receive as long as we live by faith. Which is just amazing that Jesus would do that. And so in that sense, there is a possibility for us to be saved because he's been punished for us. So now if we trust him, then he saves us. You know, he applied punishment that he received to our account. Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So in Christ we have justification, we have the blessing of Abraham, we have the promise of the Spirit and all those things through faith. So he's just showing that salvation by faith is accessible and wonderful all you get by law? Curse. Right, anything you want to say through 14? He's clearly saying to me what I'm doing, which is that there's two ways. If you go by a worldly, the laws of the world, you're not going to go nowhere. You're just going to be on basically downhill. But if you go through Christ, you're going to be... But he's not talking about the laws of the world. This is the law that he gave. But, but, but trying to be right by a law doesn't work for us because we've broken it. This is theoretical. 
But what if somebody kept all the law? Would they be, would they suffer eternal punishment? No. Why would they? They'd still be in a right relationship with God. What cuts us off from a right relationship with God? Sin. Sin. We never sin. What about a baby? The baby okay with God? Why? They never sin. But unfortunately, when we become accountable, then we sin, and that cuts us off from God. And we deserve eternal punishment. Jesus took that in our place. Uh, a lot of people make a distinction when they're studying uh, Paul about the difference between you know, like the law, uh, Old Testament law, versus like law in general. And so um, this seems like maybe he's he's talking about the old law and then talking about just law in general, uh, of which the old law is just one example of that. Well, there are certainly a lot of things in this that make us think about the old law. He's going to, in the next section, he's going to talk about came in 430 years after the promise, you know, on Mount Sinai, basically, and so forth. But I don't think that's all that important. It's not like, well, the law of Moses wouldn't save us, but if we'd had a different law, it would. There's no salvation by law, period, which the law of Moses is the best one. <laughs> Whatever law you've got, you've broken it. I have other comments or questions. All right, um, fifteen to eighteen. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Okay, he says, you know, if you have a human covenant, you can't, after ratifying it, just alter it. You know, you can't change it. Well, God made this covenant, this promise with Abraham. And the promise referred to Abraham's seed. He makes the point that that's singular in number because, I mean, it, it mean, seed means descendants, but it's a singular form and that corresponds to Jesus being one. And so that was a convenient thing, that the, the seed word is singular uh, in number. It's kind of a collective noun. Um, and so he, when he said, when, Jesus, when God spoke about the seed, and, and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, who was he talking about? You're asking about the seed, or... Yeah, who was the seed? Christ. Yeah, that was Jesus. That's what he had in mind. 
Through Jesus all the nations will be blessed. Now he says, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, when did the law come relative to the promise? 430 years later. So can you do something 430 years later that 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 you know adds to or takes from the promised covenant? Would you allow that to happen in human relationships? You sign a contract and then you want to change it? And we make you follow the terms of the contract. Is God going to renege on his contract because he gave a law 430 years later? No. Now the 430 years is kind of complicated, but maybe the 430 years is from the end of the patriarchal age when they entered Egypt until they left it and received the law. That's probably the best understanding of the 430 years. Uh, you know, because you kind of got this promise repeated over a period of time from Abraham down to the entrance into Egypt. So I think he's picking up the end of that time and still, from the end of the patriarchal age, you know, until the law was 430 years. If you wanted to take it all the way back to Abraham, that would be even longer. That would just make his point stronger. But at the end of that period of promise, until the law was 430 years, how can you do something 430 years later that, uh, that sets aside the promise and makes it not, not operate anymore? He's saying that the promise goes beyond the law to Christ. He's, he's showing that the law was sort of an interim situation. But it doesn't keep the promise in Christ from being fulfilled. And you can't have both. You know, it's either by law or by promise. And God granted the inheritance to Abraham by promise. Comments and questions? I'm tempted to stop here. I think we're getting along pretty well. Some of you look kind of tired. So uh, why, why don't we just uh, stop here? I think we're uh, certainly very on track to... Uh